Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Before I continue, if you want to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3, and there's tons of benefits whichever tier you happen to choose. I'd also like to give a shout out to the Kentucky History Podcast. This is a really great podcast that looks at the state of Kentucky. And being in Canada, I don't know too much about Kentucky, and the history that they relate is very interesting. It's on all podcast platforms, so give a search out for the Kentucky History Podcast. Also, I'm looking at 1890 in Canada. You might notice that a few weeks ago, I looked at 1891 in Canada. That's because I screwed up my schedule. Things are getting fixed right now. Now, how about we begin? On January 1st, Joseph Goderick Blanchett would pass away at the age of 60. Blanchett was the only person to ever serve as both Speaker of the House of Commons and Speaker of a Provincial Legislature. He served as the first Speaker of the Legislative Assembly of Quebec from 1867 to 1875 while also at the same time serving as a Member of Parliament from 1867 to 1874. He would serve in Parliament again from 1878 to 1883, during which he also served as the third Speaker of the House from 1879 to 1883. On January 25th, William Kennedy would pass away at the age of 75. He had been born in Cumberland House, Saskatchewan, to a chief factor of the Hudson's Bay Company in 1814, and would work as a fur trader as a young man with the company. He would stay with the company until 1846 when he left because he disagreed with the policy of selling liquor to the indigenous people. In 1851, he would serve as the commander of the expedition sponsored by Lady Franklin to find her husband Sir John Franklin. The expedition did not find Franklin, but did gain substantial knowledge of the Canadian Arctic region in the process. His expedition bucked the English trend and chose to dress the way the indigenous did, and he used their survival techniques while also using sled dogs and working with the indigenous to find the best routes in the area. He would return to England in 1852 without losing a single man, the first Arctic expedition to ever do so. After another expedition for Lady Franklin, he would spend two years trading around the South American coast and then would settle in the Red River settlement with his wife in 1860 where he operated a store. On March 4th, Henry Bethune was born in Gravenhurst, Ontario. His family had a long history in medicine going back to the Middle Ages, and his great-great-grandfather, the Reverend Dr. John Bethune, had established the first Presbyterian congregation in Montreal. As a young man, Henry attended Owen Sound Collegiate Institute and graduated in 1907. During the First World War, he served with the Royal Canadian Army Medical Corps as a stretcher-bearer and was wounded by shrapnel and returned to Canada in 1915. He would earn his medical degree in 1916, as a young man, he was an advocate for socialized medicine and an early member of the Communist Party of Canada. He would come to prominence internationally as a frontline trauma surgeon, supporting the Republicans during the Spanish Civil War. During his time in the Spanish Civil War, he would develop a mobile blood transfusion service for soldiers. Afterwards, he would support the Communist Party of China's 8th Root Army during the Second Sino-Japanese War where he brought modern medicine to rural China in his treatment of wounded soldiers and sick villagers. 
1939, he would accidentally cut his finger while performing surgery on a Chinese soldier, resulting in blood poisoning that would kill him on November 12, 1939. Mao Zedong, the future leader of the Communist China, had respected Bethune and would give a eulogy for him. In 1972, he would be named a person of national historic significance in Canada, and in 1976, the home he was born in was restored and made into the Bethune Memorial House, which is now a National Historic Site of Canada. In 1990, both Canada and China issued a postage stamp in honour of the 100th birthday since his birth. In 1998, he was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame, and a statue of Bethune was unveiled in Gravenhurst by Governor-General Adrian Clarkson. Montreal would name a public square for him and erect a statue as well. In China, Bethune is one of the few Westerners to have a dedicated statue, several of which have been erected around the country, and his life is taught in elementary schools to this day in China. Also in China, there are many schools and medical universities named for him and built in his honour. In 1991, China created the Bethune Medal, the highest medical honour in China, which is given to seven individuals every two years, who are recognised for their outstanding contribution, heroic spirit and great humanitarianism in the medical field. Here's a clip of when Bethune was finally named a person of national historic significance. In the tranquil Ontario town of Gravenhurst last Sunday, the first tangible honour was paid in his own country to one of Canada's most famous figures, an international hero who, until this summer, was scarcely known in Canada. At the house where Dr. Bethune was born 82 years ago, the government of Ontario dedicated a plaque commemorating his humanitarian services. Morris Cutler, who recently returned from a visit to Dr. Bethune's grave and memorial in northwest China, examines the phenomenon of the man who is known to more human beings than any other Canadian, living or dead. Norman Bethune's final resting place is in a memorial park in the sleepy provincial city of Shishashuang, the village of the stone houses, about three hours by train southwest of Peking. It was here just three weeks ago that the government of Dr. Bethune's native land finally publicly acknowledged his achievements, nearly 33 years after he died while caring for the wounded soldiers of Mao Zedong. External Affairs Minister Mitchell Sharp stood in bright sunshine in front of Bethune's grave in the shadow of a 20-foot statue of the doctor. With thousands of crickets singing in the background, Mr. Sharp delivered a simple eulogy. What we remember most clearly at this time is his medical service during China's war of resistance. In a spirit of friendship, he unstintingly served the people and soldiers of China for almost two years before dying of blood poisoning on November the 12th, 1939. It is with great pleasure, therefore, that I am able to inform you that the appropriate Canadian authorities have just declared Dr. Beth Yoon to be of national historical significance because of his exceptional humanitarian achievements in Spain and in this country. Arrangements are being made to ensure that he will also receive recognition in his own country as he has already abroad, especially here in this city. On March 24th, Agnes McPhail would be born in Gray County, Ontario. She would eventually earn a second-class teacher's certificate and would go on to teach at several rural Ontario schools, while also becoming politically active in various organizations, including the United Farm Women of Ontario. In 1921, two years after changes came to the Elections Act, 
she was elected to the House of Commons as a member of the Progressive Party of Canada as the first female MP in Canadian history. She would serve as an MP until 1940 and then move to provincial politics in Ontario, serving in the Ontario Legislature from 1943 to 1945 and then again from 1948 to 1951. She would pass away three years later in Toronto at the age of 63. In 1968, McPhail Memorial Elementary School was named for her, followed by a second school in Scarborough in 1981. In 1993, Agnes McPhail Day was declared in Toronto every March 24th, and in 2017, the Canadian 150 Canadian $10 note was created with John A. Macdonald, George Etienne Clarchet, and James Gladstone joining McPhail on the currency. This would make her the first woman other than the Sovereign to have a permanent spot on Canadian currency. Several roads, parks, and buildings are also named for her. In 1948, she addressed a group of students at the University of Toronto asking why women aren't in Parliament. Here is a clip of that event. A youth conference on Parliament, and a question vital in the mind of youth. As you heard, Miss McPhail's one of the liveliest of the panel, and with Miss McPhail present, women in politics soon came to the fore. But they can't see me, and that's nice. Air audience, they can't see me. But uh, there is no difference that I know of, except that uh, I think either a man or a woman must have had a great interest in public affairs previously or they wouldn't, no one would think of choosing them, nominating them. They, they must have shown their interest in some way. Don't you think there'd be more women in the Canadian Parliament if there were more women in municipal offices across this country? Oh, yes, if there were more women in everything that, of a public nature, there'd be more women candidates. Up to the present time, generally speaking, whenever a woman gets a nomination, she gets a nomination in a constituency where the chances of election are not too hopeful. No, some some nominations the men don't want. But there's only one Miss McPhail. Yeah. I agree with that. On March 30th, Thomas Greenway, the Premier of Manitoba, would halt provincial funding for all Catholic schools, causing a huge uproar in Quebec. Greenway had been Premier of the province since 1888 and would remain so until 1900, and he did not outlaw Catholic schools, but all funding was removed, and parents who sent their children to Catholic schools were still required to contribute to the public school board as well. Greenway was noted for being anti-Catholic and anti-French, and the Court of Canada would also force Manitoba to translate all its legislation into French, which would take seven years to complete. With a large Protestant population in Manitoba, his legislation was very popular, and would contribute to his majority government win in 1892. On April 4th, Pierre-Joseph Chaveau would pass away at the age of 69. He had served as the first Premier of Quebec from 1867 to 1873, at which point he was appointed to the Canadian Senate and served as the Speaker of the Senate of Canada for one year. From 1867 to 1874, he served in the House of Commons while also serving as the Premier of Quebec. After he suffered an election defeat, he would retire from politics and became the Dean of the Faculty of Law at the Université Laval. On April 20th, Maurice Duplessis is born in Quebec. He would enter politics after practicing law in 1927, winning a seat as a member of the Conservative Party of Canada. In 1931, he would be re-elected to a seat and in 1933 was elected as the leader of the party, 
which at the time was the official opposition in the legislature. In 1936, he would serve his first time as the Premier of Quebec, which ran until November 8, 1939, when he called a snap election and was defeated. He would return to the Premier position in 1944 and would hold power without any serious opposition until 1959, when he passed away in office on September 7th. At the time of his death, he had served in the legislature since February 5, 1923, and was referred to simply as the boss. While his critics call his time as Premier the Great Darkness, his supporters consider it to be the greatest period of Quebec history due to his support of a positive economic and social development policy, his support of property rights, and his strong opposition to communism, feminism, environmentalism, and separatism. In this clip from 1959, Prime Minister John Diefenbaker eulogizes him over the CBC radio. Maurice Duplessis, in the devoted service which he gave throughout his life to the maintenance of the rights and traditions of his people, became one of the most colorful characters in the public life of Canada in this half century. He loved Canada. He recognized that the federal system was the only sure basis for a united Canada. He died in harness, as he would have wished. He died amid the development in northern Quebec, in which he had played so large a part. Many things that he did resulted in controversy, but whether in agreement or not, I think his place in history will be that of a born leader of men in his day and generation, with recognition given to the fact that the courses that he followed were the product of his devotion to the principles in which he believed, rather than being the dictates of expediency. I extend, and most sincerely, both personally and on behalf of the Government of Canada, heartfelt sympathy to his sisters, to his colleagues in the cabinet and legislature, and to the people of the province of Quebec. On April 25th, Chief Crowfoot of the Blackfoot people would die at the age of 59. When he was five, his father was killed during a raid of the Crow tribe. As a young man, he would fight as a warrior in as many as 19 battles. But despite his prowess as a warrior, he was known for always trying to obtain peace instead of war. He would become involved in Treaty No. 7 negotiations, and while he did not take part in the Northwest Rebellion, his son did participate. Crowfoot would die of tuberculosis at Blackfoot Crossing, and 1,800 members of his tribe would attend his funeral. In 2008, he was inducted into the North America Railway Hall of Fame for his contributions to the railway industry. Several museums and historical sites commemorate Chief Crowfoot and the Blackfoot. In 2014, the Blackfoot Historical Crossing Park was able to retrieve Crowfoot's deerskin jacket, bow, and pipe from the Royal Albert Memorial Museum in England. In 1968, Willie Dunn, an Indigenous singer and a filmmaker, would record the Ballad of Crowfoot and direct a video for it for the National Film Board, making it one of Canada's first music videos and also the first film directed by an Indigenous filmmaker for the National Film Board. The song is 10 minutes long but I'm going to include a portion of it here because it is quite good. As well, I didn't go into too much detail on Chief Crowfoot because I do plan on doing an entire episode on him at a later date. Stand before the council fire You have the mind and the desire 
of notions wise you speak so well and in brave deeds you do excel and it's 1853 and you stand the chief of confederacy you are the leader you are the chief you stand against both liar and thief they trade raise whiskey steal your land and they're coming in swift like the wind blows and they shoot the buffalo kill the game and send their preachers into shame and it's 1864 and you think of peace and you think of war broke with provo while the tears been a brave man for many years why the sadness why the sorrow maybe there'll be a better tomorrow on may 4th franklin carmichael was born in aurelia ontario he would go on to become a member of the group of seven famous for his use of watercolors oil paints and charcoal he would capture Ontario landscapes for the most part, while also working as a designer and illustrator, creating promotional brochures, advertisements, and stylizing books. He was the youngest member of the Group of Seven, which often had him on the fringe of the group due to his age. He would pass away on October 24, 1945 in Toronto at the age of 55. Emily Carr would say that his work was a little pretty and too soft, but pleasant. The Franklin Carmichael Art Group would be founded in 1952 through the Royal Canadian Academy of Art, and his 1929 watercolor, Lone Lake, was sold in 2012 at an auction for $330,000. On June 5th, the Ontario general election would be held, and Oliver Mowat and his Liberal Party would go on to a sixth consecutive majority government. He would lose a number of seats, four in total, while the Conservatives picked up two. Mowat had been Premier since 1872 and would continue to remain in that position until 1896. On July 20th, British Columbia held its election, which saw the number of MLAs increase from 27 to 33, while the number of ridings fell to 18. There were no political parties in the province at the time, and both Indigenous residents and Chinese Canadians were disallowed from voting. John Robson would continue to serve as Premier, having been elected in 1889 and continuing until 1892. On August 10th, Prince Edward Island held its election, with the Conservative Party under Neil MacLeod winning 15 seats, a reduction of three, and the Liberals picking up three seats to finish with 15 as well. MacLeod would lose a motion of no confidence the next year, ending his time as Premier of the province. On September 20th, Kathleen Parlow was born in Fort Calgary and quickly established herself as a violin prodigy. Moving to San Francisco at the age of four with her mother, she would go on to become a top professional violinist, and she'd established a concert career that took her to Europe. At the age of 17, she started to give public performances in Finland, Russia, Germany, the Netherlands, and Norway. In Norway, she would perform for the King and Queen, and she was billed as the Canadian violinist, despite not living in Canada since the age of four. During the First World War, she would perform in neutral nations in Europe, before returning to North America for a 1916 tour. 
1922, she did a 22-month tour of Hawaii, Indonesia, China, Singapore, Korea, and Japan. By 1929, her concert career was not as profitable as it had once been, and she would begin teaching at various schools, including at the Juilliard School of Music, beginning in 1936. In 1940, she returned to Canada and began to perform again until her career started to decline in the 1950s. In 1959, she was appointed as the head of the College of Music of the University of Western Ontario, and she would pass away on August 19, 1963. Here is Kathleen Parlow performing The Last Rose of Summer, recorded on April 6, 1916. Also on August 10th, Angus MacDonald was born in Halifax. As a young man, he would teach school to raise money for university. When the First World War broke out, he would join the Cape Breton Highlanders and spend two years in Europe fighting in the trenches. On November 7th, 1918, four days before the end of the war, a sniper shot him in the neck. He would survive, but the wound required him to recover for eight months in England. In 1919, and back in Canada, he would begin attending law school and eventually lectured and taught law throughout the 1920s. On August 22, 1933, he would be elected to the Nova Scotia Legislature and two weeks later was the Premier of the province, serving until 1940. That year, he became the Federal Minister of Defence for Naval Services and would create the highly effective Canadian Navy and Allied Convoy System that took soldiers and supplies to Europe throughout the war. After the war, he would become Premier of Nova Scotia once again, this time serving until 1954, when he died in office. As Premier, he would completely alter the province, including spending $100 million on building bridges and paving roads, while also improving public education and extending electric transmission lines. On December 10th, Boss Johnson was born in Victoria, British Columbia. After serving in the First World War, he would be elected to the BC Legislature in 1933, serving until 1937. In 1945, he would be elected once again to the legislature, and after the resignation of Premier John Hart in 1947, he would succeed him as Liberal leader, which made him Premier. He was the first Premier of British Columbia to be born after Confederation in the province. He would serve as Premier until August 1, 1952. As Premier, he introduced compulsory health insurance and a 3% sales tax to pay for it. He expanded the highway system and the railway, while also getting the Kenny Dam built. The dam was the first major hydroelectric project in the province. He would also appoint Nancy Hodges as the second female speaker in the British Commonwealth, while also disbanding the British Columbia Provincial Police and replacing the force with the RCMP. He would pass away in 1964 in Victoria at the age of 73. I hope you enjoyed that look at 1890 in Canada, and if you did, please give a rating and review. 
You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can visit my website where you'll find all my podcast episodes and hundreds of other articles about Canada's history. Just go to canadaehx.com. Once again, you can support the podcast at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash canadaehx. And if you'd like, you can come to my Zoom History Conference that's happening on August 30th at 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. It's all about T.G. Hamilton of Winnipeg, who held seances that brought the rich and famous to the city. It's free for my patrons, or $5 for everyone else. Just go to CanadaEHX.com and click Register. Thanks, we'll see you again next time.